Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Hi, welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing with Fire on the Horizon. This next section is called The Divine Risk of Love. So we've been talking about the ideas of Joseph Smith and how they point us to a deeper understanding of what it is that is going on in the temple ritual itself, or what it's supposed to be pointing to, as well as what Mormonism is pointing to in general. And so today we're talking about something that is the differentiator of Mormonism from just traditional Christianity, at least one of them, but it's overall what's the purpose of creation in general. And in Mormonism, there's a pre-existence, and then we leave that pre-existence to come here. Um, we'll talk about exactly why, but I, that just is to give background to this quote. So you say, the question immediately arises, if God wants to be one with us, as we talked about last time, then why have we been banished from his presence? It is a strange way to show one's love by asking for a separation. However, according to Joseph Smith, that is exactly what God has done. What innovations did Joseph Smith bring to the idea of the purpose of creation? I mean, first of all, he brought the notion that we're not totally created and God didn't create us for his purposes because he didn't fully create us at all. I mean, this is revolutionary. But God did fashion the world for us for a purpose, and he organized it so that it would serve his purposes for the motive of making it possible that we could fully share in his love by becoming what he is. In order to have the capacity to love as God loves, it requires us to enter into a life where we can freely choose to return God's love with our own, and where we love God due to persuasion and not due to coercion, due to the overwhelming nature of his glory and power and might that would make it so that it would be, I mean, everyone would worship God immediately if they understood, you know, that God was in charge and, you know, you're not going to get anywhere unless you go his way. So in order to give us the kind of freedom that is necessary to have a truly loving relationship, God has made it so that his existence isn't obvious. We can choose for or against him, and only if we're willing to be persuaded can we see the loving overtures that are present in the experiences, the small experiences day to day of life. There are two amazing realizations. The first is that the plan that Satan offered wasn't even a possibility. A plan where everyone is saved is impossible because if salvation means being in a truly loving relationship that fulfills us, what he was proposing was logically impossible because you can't coerce that kind of relationship, so it's impossible to guarantee that everybody will have that relationship. What that means is we are free to choose to be in relationship or not. And if there's freedom, then there can't be any guarantees. It may be that people will choose against God for all eternity. Heaven forbid, but there may just be those who throw themselves into outer darkness, shut the door that locks on the inside. They take the key and throw it away, and they refuse to communicate with us, and we refuse to communicate with them. So for all intents and purposes, they had ceased to exist for us. The second realization is that when we are accepted into a relationship, it is a matter of grace. In other words, God freely gives himself to us, and in responsive love, we freely give ourselves to him. This is how grace is. 
is given freely. We don't have to prove to God that we are worthy of a relationship. He loves us already. We don't have to prove anything. And if we tried to prove it by doing good works to earn his love, then we would show that we don't understand what love is at all. Because love is given as a matter of grace. It doesn't have to be earned. But not merely does it not have to be earned. It can't be earned. Love is given because God is loving, not because we deserve it or we have earned his love. That's just the way that he is. So if we try to earn his love through our good works, we just demonstrate that we truly don't trust God, we don't have faith in him, and we don't understand what's going on here at all. Now, having said that, if the purpose of life is to come here to have a relationship with God, the reality is is that many people never fulfill their purpose in life. In fact, they might not even get much of a start on it, which would suggest that the purpose of life can't be solely bound up in coming to a relationship with God. But, that said, Every person will have opportunities, if they mature to a certain point, to demonstrate and have love for other persons. We will learn about love. We begin learning about love, I suggest, in utero. We grow as children in our ways of loving others, and then we mature in our love. And as we mature in a healthy love, we choose these relationships. We value people not as mere objects that can fulfill our needs and purposes, like a mother fulfills the needs of an infant. But we see that true love is one that goes out of its way to give to the beloved and to see for the best interests of the beloved, regardless of the circumstances. And so while everybody may not come to love God in the way that the Christian gospel has suggested is the ultimate purpose of life, and which I suggest, in fact, is in eternity the ultimate purpose, the ultimate purpose of life for all human beings is still to learn to love each other and to express love and loving relationships. So this revolutionizes what creation is about and what the purpose of life is about. It also revolutionizes the notion of what it is to be in a relationship with God. So it means that we are justified by faith in God. Faithfulness is an interpersonal term. It means to trust another person. And so to have faith in God is to trust God. To have faith in God doesn't mean I know all about God. I can describe everything accurately about him and I've grasped everything. What it means is I've come to know God and I trust him in my life. And we are saved by this faith because in entering into a loving relationship with God, we are already in right relationship. That's what the word dikaiosine in Greek actually means. Or to be justified in Pauline terms means to be in right relationship with God, to be accepted in that relationship. It's a covenant relationship, a relationship of mutual commitment to one another. And so this solves the problem of faith and works, because we're saved, as you will, we're justified by our faith in God, because it is just the way that love is, that couldn't operate on any other principles. But there are also works entailed in this love. So if I love a person, I will do what I can for the well-being of that person. I will regard that person and that person's purposes as my purposes. I will treat that person with due respect, regard, and commitment, and I won't place that person at risk for my own benefit. It also means that if I've harmed our relationship, I'm going to do whatever I can to heal that relationship. So repentance is entailed in the very notion of entering into this kind of relationship with God. It means I'm going to do whatever I can to heal the relationship that I have damaged. Not only with God, but because I realize that my, the way that I treat others is entailed in my relationship with God. And because a part of loving God is to truly love others, I will go out of my way to do whatever it takes to heal that relationship. If I've wronged a person, I will confess it. 
If I've stolen something, I will return it. If I have done something that injures the relationship, I'll do whatever is necessary to repair that relationship and heal it. And so repentance is entailed in the very possibility of relationship where we are saved by grace in an I-thou relationship. So this notion of a relational purpose of our existence is pregnant with meaning and so insightful as to what the essential gospel of Jesus Christ is about. It really sums up everything kind of in the notion that God is love and we love him because he loved us first. You covered a lot of this here, but backing up a little bit, and we've talked about this in the past, and if you want to, listeners, you can go back and listen in depth to the podcast about the problem of evil and the theodicy or you know way to deal with that that is developed within Mormonism. But this kind of touches upon that here, but it's from the perspective of God risking in this love. So. Let me just read this quote from you, and then I want to read that William James quote, because I think it's relevant here. So, you say, To participate in the divine love by loving others, to possess a fullness of glory and joy by becoming one with God, is the greatest joy possible for persons. It is an incommensurate good that justifies confronting any finite evils necessary to accomplish it. And so, William James has this great quote. I mean, it's not exactly on, but he poses this kind of idea as well. He says, suppose that the world's author put the case to you before creation, saying, I'm going to make a world not certain to be saved, a world the perfection of which shall be conditioned merely, the condition being that each several agent does his own level best. I offer you the chance of taking part in such a world. Its safety, you see, is unwarranted. It is a real adventure, with real danger, yet it may win through. It is a social scheme of cooperative work genuinely to be done. Will you join the procession? Will you trust yourself and trust the other agents enough to face the risk? Most of us, I say, would therefore welcome the proposition to add our fiat to the fiat of the Creator. So, just this idea of there is a risk involved with the project that God has in mind for the purpose of the Earth's formation or creation, whatever you want to call it. But as William James posits there, I think Joseph Smith was thinking along the same lines of like, well, as you said, the ends make it worth any of this evil, and that's part of the way that Mormonism can deal with the problem of evil, is just by saying the good that can come out of it is so great, and we knew that there were risks, but we weighed the options and said it's worth it, so let's go do this thing, even though maybe we didn't fully understand, but again, we cover that more in a theodicy, more in this one, we're talking about God's risk. Yes, and so we address that in the theodicy, but what's important is that in life, we're involved in a cooperative endeavor where we are co-creators with God of the world in which we live. But not only are we co-creators of the world, clearly we're also co-creators of ourselves. We choose of ourselves what we will be. And God doesn't have full fiat power because of the free will, the risk that he's taken. And here's the key. God has taken the risk of sharing with us divine love and divine power where we can co-create with him by creating families and, and by becoming parents and whether we have children naturally or through adoption or whatever means, we become like God parents. For those who have children naturally, we even have a closer relationship in the sense that we are creating children in our own likeness and image and who already have our proclivities and who are already naturally inclined to be like us in some senses. And so we have this amazing creative power that God has shared with us which is kind of a mini trial run of being gods, if you will. 
There is nothing in human existence more divine than being a parent. There is also nothing more trying and difficult than being a parent. All right, yeah, that leads into your next quote here. You say, that's not really difficult to understand why Joseph Smith, and I would say Mormonism in general, especially now, put so much emphasis on the family unit as the starting place for exaltation. Because no other relationship, as you kind of alluded to, could bring us closer to God, could open us to the pain entailed by love, could force us to grow through love offered in unconditional grace to others who might not return our love. And as you said, especially, I mean, I guess there's various times when children might not return your love, but you know, when they're very first born and they literally can't even comprehend that you are doing something for them, they're just like, I need stuff, wah, give it to me. But you know, obviously later in the teenage years when they separate from you and you know, just at various times throughout, but yeah. But with that kind of a metaphor, but kind of taking it literally too, but anyway, with that idea of God having a parent relationship to us, you say that God's love for us has made him vulnerable to our pains and suffering for our sins. God's love has made it possible for us to be made over in his image if we accept his indwelling life into ourselves to be purged from the inside out. His likeness becomes our likeness through atonement, for we become one with him. And that's kind of Joseph Smith's view on what the divine project is and why, like you kind of posed the question at the beginning, that answers the question of, well, why would separating us from God if we were already in his presence help us learn more about being like him? And so, I don't know, he says basically that the earth is a school, so you can come and learn. And yes, it's going to be hard and you're going to suffer, but that's part of the plan. That's part of the purpose. It's not something that God didn't think of or some evil corruption of the world that we screwed up from the Garden of Eden. It's that that was the whole design to come and learn from those kind of experiences. Precisely. And let me put this even in starker terms. I've come to see that the idea that relationship is a pretty good argument for having sexual relations only within marriage, and here's why. Sex is an amazing power that God has shared with us. It's a great challenge for those who can't have children because of the anguish that they go through. And this is a real challenge. My heart goes out to couples who, who can't have children as they would love to have. Thank goodness we have the option of an adoption, which I think is a divine act in and of itself. Adoption it has more than a few divine metaphors involved with it. But for those who have children, in order to properly value another person, before taking the possibility of creating another person, and so an either relationship with a new human being, we will take due regard to make sure that we have prepared and have done everything we can to safeguard that life and also the life of the mother. Because becoming pregnant is an awesome act, but it's also a scary act. A woman is going to certainly be discomforted at least for nine months. Pregnancy and birth are always a difficult proposition, but in order to have a life prepared to properly value being in a relationship with a woman and the possibility of having children, it's necessary to make sure that all of the safeguards are in place so that they are properly taken care of and they are given the protection and the benefits that are accorded to a person that is truly loved. And so, in order to safeguard and protect this kind of awesome power that God has shared with us, its use must be guarded to appropriate relationships. Now, I know a lot of people are saying, look, I've got a birth control that almost always works. 
But let's assume that it always worked. If the purpose of sex is to solely enjoy oneself, then we've missed the entire purpose of what true love actually is. The intimate relationship that we have in the human sexual act is so sacred that it is safeguarded for someone to whom we truly are committed. It's not this kind of, well, let's take a look and see if we're really committed to each other for a while before we're truly committed. But we've got all the benefits of a relationship, and don't worry, we can always just abort the baby if we mess up. That kind of thinking, I think, is truly, truly twisted, because it not only disvalues human life, it is the ultimate disregard for another human being using another person merely as a means to one's own ends. It is therefore an immoral act inherently. It's not only a disregard for the value of the I-Thou relationship, it is inherently forgetting what is involved in the relationship itself as an I-Thou relationship and the possibility of additional I-Thou relationships that one participates in creating. So, you know, I did want to get on this high horse, but I've come to see that one of the reasons... Now, look, there are plenty of people who you know, for any number of reasons, really wonderful people who have not been able to contain their passions. It's not an easy proposition. I've been there. And so being able to control one's passions is one of the major tasks that we have, our bodies, and to have control over them. And it's a huge challenge. And I think, you know, people who have not been able to maintain or contain or however we want to put that are due a great deal of charity and compassion. Frankly, it's just natural. So for people like that, I, we're not in a position to judge because there, but for the grace of God, there go I. And what we need to understand that will serve us in an, in an either relationship is that we're in no position to judge these people. I'm simply making the argument about why these kinds of relationships are sacred and therefore merit being protected by sacred covenants. I, I wanted to say that because part and parcel of being LDS is to have this recognition of what it is to be in a relationship that is productive of, that or could possibly be productive of human life and to have a family. And the family is kind of the ultimate focus of whatever we're doing in human life. Everybody comes into life in a family in this world. Everybody's part of a family and the greatest fulfillment we can find is within the walls of our own homes with our families. And so you know, this is an appropriate focus of a truly I-thou relationship that is not merely a relationship of love. It is a deifying relationship, one that makes us in the likeness and image of God like no other. So I just wanted to share that and because it's so much a part of being Mormon that we have these restrictions to having intimate relationships only with those with whom we have an appropriate commitment that has been recognized by the bonds of covenants to each other and to invite God with us as a bond into the relationship. Anyway, I'll get off my, my soapbox at this point. Okay. Well, I mean, we've pretty much covered everything here. Is there anything else you want to say about the idea of the divine risk of love before we go? Yeah, I mean, one of the greatest recognitions of Joseph Smith was that because God loves us, it opens God himself and all those in the divine relationship to the possibility of pain. Anybody who's been a parent of a teenager, or a two-year-old for that matter, knows the pain of being rejected by others that you love dearly. We've all been jilted by people that we wanted to like us, but to be rejected by somebody that you truly love in the most holy and sacred way in an I-thou relationship and to be rejected, we have these kinds of sayings. 
I'll never open myself to be hurt like that again. Relationships are risky because in entering into an eye that relationship, I make myself vulnerable because my well-being is intertwined with the well-being of the beloved. And so I'm vulnerable. And vulnerability is perhaps the greatest human power that there is to be open to others. Vulnerability means that I'm willing to take into myself all of the value and care for the well-being of another human being. But that also puts me at risk of being deeply hurt in the event that the other human being doesn't return my love. And so God took this risk with us. And over and over again in Scripture, God expresses the pain that he feels when we reject him, when we don't fully return his love. He's given us commandments that are merely ways of showing us how to love one another and how to fully love God. And when we don't keep his commandments, what we're doing is essentially rejecting the divine relationship that he's offered to us. And so it's deeply painful for God to watch us violate the commandments, to watch us not do what he has given us a hand to assist us to do through the means of learning to love each other. God himself feels great pain at the evil that we do to one another when he sees how we treat one another. If you were a parent and you saw your son beating up your daughter or, you know, sons beating up each other or daughter beating up a son, you would feel great pain. God has made himself vulnerable to pain because he loves us. Pain, this kind of interpersonal pain, is inherent in the very nature of the loving relationship which he seeks. And so the bottom line is, is that to say that God is love is to say that God is vulnerable to pain in the relationships that he has freely chosen to have with us. And that's an amazing recognition for Joseph Smith and the revelations that he received, how God has disclosed. Now, it's expressed throughout the Old and New Testaments in the way that God expresses this pain as well. It's just the way that love is. If we open ourselves to love, we're opening ourselves to the possibility of feeling this kind of deeply emotional, interpersonal pain that a person can feel when one is rejected. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.